1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up Podcast. Sala here got an interesting, deep, and passionate discussion on its way uh, with Dr. Bob Rotella, who has worked with so many professional golfers. All uh, I mean, God, we, we walk through a lot of all the different people that he's worked with. I hate to even limit it to professional golfers. He's got a book. It's called Make Your Next Shot Your Best Shot. He's got a lot of great books I've really enjoyed. Listen to the audiobooks. They're great for long drives. Uh, over the years, and it's great to talk to the man himself and pick his brain a little bit on golf psychology and psychology in general. Uh, we talk a lot about confidence. No Laying Up is brought to you by our friends at Precision Pro Golf. and golf, confidence is a wonderful thing, doubt is not. That's why everyone at No Laying Up carries Precision Pro Golf rangefinders. Precision Pro believes golf is enjoyed the most when you're confident. We're going to talk a lot about that with Dr. Bob. That's exactly what their products are designed to do deliver confidence. Our listeners get $20 off. Any Precision Pro Golf Finder using coupon code NOLAYINGUP, that's all one word. You receive industry-leading customer support, free lifetime battery replacements, and the completely free Precision Pro Golf app, which helps you measure everything that matters to your golf game, distance, putts, fairways, hits, and much more. When everything's made to measure, nothing else compares to Precision Pro. So go to precisionprogolf.com. Use coupon code Up at checkout for twenty dollars off a Precision Pro Golf rangefinder. You'll never second guess your distance. You'll never second guess adding Precision Pro Golf to your bag. Swing with confidence. Hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. Here's Dr. Bob Rotella. Well, I promise I'm going to do my best not to make this just a personal uh, mental uh, training session with you. I know I, I don't know if I can quite quite afford you on that front, but. Looking forward to chatting with you, Dr. Bob. And I, I just want to know, how, how did you end up here? How did you get into golf psychology? I figure that's probably a, the safest place to start.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I coached lacrosse, and I coached basketball. I did it all through graduate school. I coached lacrosse at the University of Connecticut, uh, the defensive coach. And I coached basketball at the University of High School while I got a doctorate in sports psychology. And I went to the University of Virginia originally teaching sports psychology and coaching lacrosse at the University of Virginia. And I was given a talk to basketball coaches in Madison Square Garden, and someone from Golf Digest was there. They liked my talk. They asked me to go do a, a talk to their Golf Digest advisory board, which was Sam Snead, Dr. Kerry Middlecoff, Paul Runyon, Bob Tosky, Jim Flick, David Love, and Peter Costas. And they all thought Sam Snead would probably rip into shreds, and Sam Snead loved it and started pouring his hearts out uh, about his experience and he basically started by saying god i hate to think how many us opens i would have won if i had you to talk to <laughs> and that kind of opened the door for everybody else there to feel comfortable talking about their mind and their emotions and the role they play in their golf game that led me to doing some work with the golf digest instruction schools they had these vip schools where we had an unbelievable staff that led me to having some of the teachers want me to help them with their tour players and geez, every time I'd go work with someone, they'd win the tournament. I never would have guessed I would have been working in golf. I mean, I caddied as a kid and I was had the good fortune of caddying quite a bit in the summer for Bobby Locke, who married a girl from my hometown. But other than that, I really didn't have much exposure to golf uh, other than maybe caddying between you know, the end of baseball season as a kid and the start of football season. So, and it just kind of went from there and word of mouth took off. and I had a career working with golfers.
1: Let's let's start this off with kind of explaining your, your philosophy on how the mind, how confidence, how the mental side of golf has an impact on where your golf ball is going to go, right? Because we know that you can't just stare stare and look at a ball and will it into the fairway, right? You have to make a physical swing at it and that is relies on fundamentals, it relies on technique, it relies on rhythm, it relies on all these things, but why is the brain and your subconscious more in control of where that ball goes than a lot of people like to think it is?
0: Well, yeah, to answer that question, let's back up a little bit and just say that, you know, a lot of people, you know, because we use the term sports psychology, they have an understanding of psychology, probably from taking an abnormal psych class or something of that kind in college. And Really I didn't have any interest in abnormality or clinical psychology. I really, you know, if you look at it, people in those fields study abnormality, abnormality at the low end, and they're trying to get people to normal functioning. Having been an athlete and a coach, I was interested in people who are already above normal who wanna be great. So it's a very different body of psychology. It's a, it's a, it's a brand new psychology in the last 30, 40 years or so it's a very positive psychology. It's it's very different. It's, uh, it's about greatness. It's about the psychology of excellence. It's about getting the most out of yourself. It's about pushing and pulling yourself to limits that most people don't go. So I'm always telling people, if you want to have everyone understand you and appreciate you, go be average, go be normal, go be like everyone else, and they'll understand you. So I spend a lot of time talking about the fact that I mean, I teach people that you have to create your own reality. You know, so if someone comes to me and says they're they're trying to be realistic when we start talking about being positive, I say, well, to me, realistic thinking, at least in the long run, if you're looking over your career, is just a way to justify being negative. Uh, I mean, we're really into thinking way outside the box and at a whole nother level. So we're asking people, to be in a great state of mind and a great mood, okay? So the second point I'd make is I got to get people to understand that as human beings, we're different because we have free will. So if someone doesn't agree with the concept of free will, if they feel like they're a victim or they just don't have it or they weren't born lucky or they weren't born with the right stuff, it's like, well, no, you have a free will. That means you get to choose how you want to think about yourself. You get to choose how you want to think about your life. And basically your life is what you make of it. And these are, you know, dreams are just your ideas for your life. And so, I mean, I got to get people to buy into the idea that you have a free will and embrace it. And from that, you have to buy into the idea that you're going to hold yourself personally responsible for how you choose to think about yourself and you're going to hold yourself accountable. And my point is, if I can't get people to buy into that, it doesn't matter, you know, where you came from. It doesn't matter, you know, where you grew up or what your parents were like. Because, I mean, you can find people who were great from every background and walk of life in every country and small town and big city you can imagine. And so, I mean, I got to get people to throw away all of the made-up excuses and fall in love with their talent. And all that means is if you don't like your talent, well, you got a problem because you're going to bring your talent and your personality to every tournament you ever play in so i mean you have to begin by liking your stuff and love what you got and your job is to find a way to be great with what you have and so that's where it all starts from there you get into the idea that well in terms of the mind i mean i say you know when you study sports psychology when you're when you're actually a true sports psychologist in other words you were trained in sports psychology you take courses in biomechanics, you take courses in kinesiology, you take courses in exercise physiology, you take courses in motor learning so that we totally buy in and understand that it's not all in the mind. Like when people ask me, is it all in the mind? I said, no, but at a certain level, if you wanna to play to your potential, your mind and your emotions are gonna play a very big role. At the tour level, if you walk the driving range, you couldn't stand on the range and pick and out who's the best player. If you went over the short game area and watched them hit pitch shots, you couldn't tell who's a great short player game player, because they all look great. Uh, if you went into a bunker, they can all hit bunker shots. If you watch them on the practice putting green, it's like when you get in the tournament or on a golf course, now the mind and emotion start playing a role. So at some point we separate people by skill. You know, there's no question about that. That it plays a, a very important role, but, At the tour level, they've all been able to do it in a practice area. At an amateur level, a lot of people can do it in a practice area. And now they have to take it to the golf course. At that point, you know, it it becomes more of a a mind and an emotional test. And I'm always telling people, I don't really know if it's in the mind or the heart or the soul or the human spirit. I just know it's somewhere inside of people. And everything I teach is real talent is inside of people. And you can't take a picture of it. TV tends to present golf if, from the perspective, if we can't take a picture of it, it doesn't exist. And you can't take a picture of what's going on inside the mind. So I'm always teaching people that, look, if we had a camera that could take a picture of your insides and we could put it next to the camera the TV shows us of the swing or the stroke or the pitching motion, well, then we could say, oh, wow, they really got in their way. You know, they had a really bad thought there. No wonder their swing changed. But TV tends to present it like eh, their swing change. It's a swing fly. Let's show a replay of that and show you what a difference in their swing. And it's like the player knows the truth. So I have to get people to be ridiculously honest with themselves because golf is probably one of the most honest things you'll ever do in life. I mean, and the way we talk about it is you have to play it as if the golf ball knows what you're thinking. You know, it kind of gets to your question is like at some point you have to play golf when you're, when it's time to swing or pitch or stroke. I mean, you have to present it as play it as if, you know, the ball knows what you're thinking. And it's basically, I want you to be like a horse with blinders on or have laser vision, or another way of saying it is nothing in the world exists, but where you want the ball to go. People talk a lot about Mo Norman, and they talk about, he had all these problems mentally or emotionally or whatever. And what was amazing is he had a beautiful comment. He said, you know, I describe the state of mind you want to be in as focused indifference. And I, I like—I I don't know if I love the word focus because all I really want you to do is softly look where you want the ball to go or look at your target or softly see a ball flight. I don't want you to try hard to do it. And sometimes when people think of focus, they start trying hard to stare down the target. I just want you to softly look. Your brain will know you're playing golf. I don't don't know how the brain knows you're playing golf, but the human brain is brilliant. It's like trying to figure out how can we be talking and have an idea that I want to communicate to you, sorry, and somehow the words come out of my mouth. I don't really know how that happens, but it does. Well, the same thing, if you've played golf a bunch, if you just look where you want the ball to go, your brain knows that that's where you want the ball to go without you telling it, and it will just happen if you stay out of the way of it it goes there a lot more of the time if you've practiced and have developed good skill or technique. And so, you know, that's how we teach it. And it's like, I I want, when it's time to play, I want it to be that the the swing is something that happens in response to what your mind sees. And that's really where I want people once they're on the golf course. Uh, So I, I want a very quiet mind. I want it very unconscious. I call it an athletic mind. Because an athletic mind is just looking and reacting with no conscious thought in between. Conscious thought is what messes up a lot of people. And the problem is for a lot of golfers who are pretty well educated is you go to school your whole life and you learn how to use your conscious brain. And unfortunately, when you play sports, if you're doing music, playing an instrument, if you're singing, if you're doing art, you really want to use your subconscious brain and you want to just let go of conscious control. I always use the example, like if you went to Disney and had someone do a caricature of you, they'd be looking at your face and their hand would be over here on a pad and they'd be drawing a caricature of you, but they don't look at the pad and tell their hand what to do. Uh, like I work, I've worked with a lot of rock musicians over the years and like, they'll tell me they always play the guitar the best when they're singing because they they can't put any attention into playing the guitar. I want golfers to see the shot and let a swing happen. And you have to trust that the, that the body is that brilliant and it will just happen. But you you train it so you don't have to think about it when you're playing. And everyone gets there, you know, when they're in the so-called zone, but we're probably in the zone less than ten percent of the time we play. So it's we're doing everything we can to get as close to that state as possible. But you have to be able to play golf great even when you're not. And that means, you know, like in this next book, Make Your Next Shot Your Best Shot, what it really means is that shot's over. Wherever your ball is, you got to go get it and go find it and go play. So if I see someone hit it in the right trees and they're walking down the fairway working on their draw swing and they're right-handed, I'm like, oh, God, they're not into their next shot. They're still beating themselves up for the last shot. You, I want to see them, you know, starting to imagine what they need to do to get the ball to go around the trees and wherever they want it to go. So, I mean, that's what we're talking about. And so you have to learn to trust your subconscious brain, even though most of the educational system is designed to teach us to use the conscious brain. And I keep telling people, the problem is some academician, uh, which I certainly was, um, you know, probably wrote the language. And it was like, The language is all used to describe the conscious mind. And I want people to get comfortable with the subconscious. And it's hard to even come up with words to describe not thinking. Is it a quiet mind? Is it unconscious? Is it silent? Uh, Is it, you know, you can come up with a number of words. You know, some people think they're not doing enough. Some people feel like they're not trying hard enough or caring enough. And ultimately, you have to get to the point where you're seeing it and doing it. For a lot of people we have to say well what other hobbies well i like to fish well when you fish you look where you think the fish are and you look in your cast you don't look at your hand and tell yourself how hard to throw it you just do it if someone says they like to play catch with baseball i said well you'll look at your buddy's glove and you'll look and you throw it you don't i mean this is where it gets interesting is you look where you want it to go but you don't give yourself any instruction or direction and maybe more importantly You don't think about whether it's going to go there or not going there. You just assume it's going to. So you just look and you throw it. You don't say, God, don't throw it over his head. Don't throw it into the ground. And if you do that, you're in trouble. Um, I played high school quarterback in football, and I might have four different receivers who ran at different speeds. I have no idea how I knew how to lead each receiver a different amount. And I never thought about it, and no one ever discussed it. If it was golf, we'd be having hour long discussions trying to figure it out and then we'd try to explain it and we'd overanalyze it and mess it all up. And I think that's the challenge, you know, in the game of golf.
1: A lot to react to there. And I that what I kept coming back to as you were talking was I felt like I had a spurt last year, maybe two, three months, where I, I, I saw I. It would all played out like all of the the unconscious mind. I know I had read golf is uh, not a game of perfect of yours, and that had helped me with you know, t- you know, not to get too deep in the concepts of it, but basically like standing up on the first tee and telling yourself that you are you are your best round you ever shot is what I said I was every time I said I'm a 66 shooter. That's what I am. That way, you know, what really resonated with me, what you said in that book was, you know, if you tell yourself you're a 72 shooter, when you get to three under you, your body or, or your mind is uncomfortable with where you are. Right. And so I, I, I it worked. It was working for me. I, I, I loved it. And it is not something I've been able to channel consistently. Why would that be? What's your reaction to that? If I was to say that and why has you know, why do people need constant maintenance of their mental, you know, approach to the game?
0: Well, f- first of all, because it's really a hard game and no matter what you do, the ball doesn't always go where you're looking. So, I mean, that's the first thing. The second thing is we're human beings and we're born flawed. We're not born perfect. And the good news, no one else in the tournament is perfect and everyone else is playing the same game of mistakes that you're playing. So th- that's where it begins. The next point would be being human. We have to deal with fear and doubt as well as being unbelievably confident. And so, I mean, you know, you're dealing with being human is, is, is part of it. Um, and you're playing a game designed to be a game of mistakes. So that's another part of it. And that's the challenge. Can you get past it? And no one's ever going to master the mind. No one's ever going to perfect it any more than they're going to perfect their golf swing. So, I mean. No, can I, sorry,
1: can I butt in real quick here? Because what? Yeah. <laughs> what so the, one of the rounds that I had, I was actually playing with Jim Furyk down here. And I, hit, I had one of the best ball striking rounds I've ever had. And I kind of was, we we're chatting after the round. And I said, you know, why would you ever, I was really in a good spot mentally. I was, why would you ever stand over a ball and not imagine that you were about to hit a perfect golf shot? And you know what his response was to that? Was because you're human. And like that, just like, honestly, that kind of sank my confidence a little bit. I'm wondering if he got that directly from you, though, because that was exactly where you went with that. <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, I, I've spent a lot of time with Jim. I don't know if that's what he was thinking about when he said that to you. But, I mean, I think if you play golf, you come to grips with the fact that you're human. And basically, I tell people, think about it like this. If you're fighting being human and think you're not going to be a champion until you perfect it, well, you're in big trouble. You're going to be 95 years old and go, God, I hope I perfect this soon before I die. And second of all, if you say you love golf, and you're trying to make golf into a game of perfect, you're basically saying, I don't like golf. I want to change golf into the game that I like, and I want it to be a game of perfect, and it's never going to happen. Uh, it, It just, you either have to come to grips with the fact that you love golf as a game of mistakes, and you have to be able to love it all the time. You know, Tom Kite in his prime, I mean, he would say that to me all the time. You know it's like you have to love golf all the time if you only like it when everything's going the way you want it you don't love golf and i, I think it's so true and so brilliant but it's it's all part it's that we don't understand this idea that you have to accept the game in order to be really good at it that, that's in your point about you know being able to see it you know it's like i think i'm on now i think i'm on 81 major champions i've worked with and it's like interesting that like if you can't see yourself winning a major you'll find a way to not let yourself do it you're you're only going to do things you're comfortable with and some people when we start you know we'll start talking about spending time visualizing or imagine yourself win a major and they'll say to me oh my god you know i've tried virtual i get so nervous just thinking about it and i i i immediately respond by saying if you're getting that nervous just thinking about it, what do you think is gonna happen when you're actually there and doing it? Hmm. So, I mean, you have to do it enough that you get comfortable with it. Uh, and that's, that's a part of it. It takes some work because we're asking people to do exceptional things. Where if you want easy, then go do what normal people do. Be average, I mean, just be okay. And the greatest cop out in the world is, I'm just not talented, or I don't have the personality to be great. I mean, those are probably the two greatest cop-outs I've heard over the years. Uh, there's no sense in me working at it or trying to get better because nothing I'm going to do is ever going to cause me to get any good at this game. And, th- you know, that, that's the other side of having a free will <laughs> is you can rationalize and go the other way. And so it's a battle in your mind with, you know, <clears throat> am I going to dare to believe in my dreams long before anybody else in the world believes it? in other words they're going to probably tell you where did you get that crazy idea what makes you think you can do stuff like that that's the craziest idea i ever heard of no one from here ever does stuff like that i mean that's what you're probably going to hear on the journey once you get there they're all going to say you know i always knew you were going to be a great one they <laughs> go wait a minute you were telling me i didn't have it and they go ah, i was just doing that to motivate you you know so that's kind of what people are dealing with and it doesn't matter if it's golf or basketball, football, baseball, or life in your business. I mean, it's. I mean, you probably had people tell you the idea of doing a, a podcast is a crazy idea. You know, it's like, how are you ever going to make this work? You know. So I mean, that's what people are dealing with. Mm-hmm. Well, well,
1: transition this a bit to some of the top professionals that you, that you've worked with, and I, I, it's it's probably a hard question to answer because I'm sure every situation is different. But what what's the, what would you say is the typical state? of a professional, you know, the, what their mindset is when they do come to see you. Are you ever are you ever shocked at how maybe poor their thinking is and, and, and that's probably what led them to you?
0: No, I think most people who come to me, I mean, it's not that they necessarily have terrible thinking or anything. They're really good or they've at least caught a glimpse of what they're capable of. And they're they're really passionate about the game and they want to see how good they can get. Like in this new book, you know, I I talk about the idea that there's a lot of there's there's kids who are precocious and came by the game quite easily and readily, and they have to deal with all kinds of pressures of expectation. And then there's another half that are late bloomers who had to work their tail off to get there. And, you know, it comes from all kinds, but in general, they know they're doing pretty darn good. And like when we spend two days when we start, you know, they come to my house. And we move in for two days and we spend all day for two days working on it, And then we stay in touch by phone and for years going out on tour. But the point is they want to get even a better mind. They want to get all of their potential out of them because what we're doing is we're chasing human potential. And I'm always telling people potential is something that hasn't happened yet. Other people like to think they know what potential looks like, but they don't because you can't take a picture of what's inside of people. And you have to have it on the inside to, to reach your potential. And so, I mean, they're basically wanting to chase that potential and they've got a glimpse of it and they want to see how far they can go with it. Sometimes like they're, they, they've won as an amateur, but they haven't won as a pro. Sometimes they've amateurs have won a club championship, uh, but they haven't won a state championship or a city championship or a national champion or a USGA event or something, a tour player, Maybe they've won once, but they want to win a lot or they want, they've won, but they want to win a major or they want a major and they want to win more majors. Other times it's like, I'm doing great with most of my game, but I'm struggling with my driver or my wedge or my putter. Other times it's like, I'm a really good solid player, but I don't let myself shoot low. You know, that's a real problem in today's game because I think because of television, the game has become, you know, to some degree a birdie fest and they want to see low scores. And there's a lot of college players who are very comfortable playing every tournament in college because they never shot over 73 or four. But boy, they shot 69 to 74 and they try pro golf and it's like they miss every cut. And it's like, you got to get really into a mindset of shooting low and love making birdies more than you hate making bogeys. And it's a, uh, It's a big change of mind. It's a mind shift. And so, I mean, it's not like they're all down in the dumps or negative. I mean, once in a while, someone might come to me after a really bad experience. But most of the time, it's some part of their game or they've accomplished a whole lot of things and they want to do more. Or sometimes it's amateurs who are 14 with big dreams. And sometimes it's people in their 50s or 60s who were unbelievably successful in work. And now they know when they retire, they've got to find a new goal and a new dream, and it's going to be golf. And they want to see how good they can get at this marvelous game of golf. And they know they can play it for a long time, and they got a new quest. And so, I mean, it's all over the place. But, you know, in general, it's not like they're down in the dumps or something.
1: A quick break here as we're talking about getting our minds right for golf. Let's talk about getting our bodies right. I'm guessing... 98 99% of our audience I'm guessing you're not doing all that you can to keep your body healthy and to limit physical pain. A lot of us sit at keyboards all day, probably not with the best posture. The aches and pains are starting to mount. I've got upper back, mid back, I got some hip stuff. I got it everywhere going on. This is where Melt Method comes into play. I want to be as healthy as I can to play as much golf as possible, but you know, every time you get a couple of those muscles flaring up, it's just going to prevent you from playing your best golf or may prevent you from playing golf at all. The Melt Method app has exercises and treatments for specific pain areas you may have, but also can help you get rebalanced, help you activate muscles that add flexibility to your golf swing, or even simple activities you can do at your desk. You can roll out your hands with these great balls that they send you. You can roll out your feet. Uh, you can do it while you're on a Zoom call, whatever. You can stream their programs from any device. They got hundreds of hours of content on there. It can be for hip pain, shoulder pain, back pain. Uh, lower body stability sequence I'm just scrolling through the app as I say this it's really an endless amount of content I'm not going to teach you what neurofascial means they're going to teach you that but I promise you this is going to be of interest to you if you're interested in just feeling better every single day Uh, and I don't know who wouldn't be so go to meltgolf.com you can use code no laying up for 10% off their super bundle that gets you started again meltgolf.com use code no laying up all one word for 10% off their super bundle let's get back to Dr. Bob what would you say is the most rewarding accomplishment in your career or one of the most rewarding? And I, and I think, you know, I, I, think, I mean, what, which, which student of yours achieved something that you would consider to be something you're, you're most proud of, or that you can, you can tangibly, you know, uh, I'm asking you to pat yourself on the back say, you know what, I had a, I had a big role in this player overcoming this and becoming this kind of player. I, I'm wondering what comes to mind.
0: Well, pr- probably the, you get more satisfaction out of people, who come to you that people said could never win a major or could never be successful on tour because they weren't precocious and they were more of a late bloomer and had to really be patient and persistent. They had to delay gratification. They had to work their tail off and eventually became a really, really successful player. But it's just a different kick when you get someone who's unbelievable, who's already been successful and you help them deal with the expectations or the pressure of, You know, because they kind of feel like they're in an only can lose situation. Like if I don't live up to my potential, they're going to badmouth me and say, what happened? How could you not win? You know, so, I mean, they're all different kind of kicks. But, you know, my kick in life is getting up every day and helping someone with their dreams. I mean, I don't really care how good they are. I mean, I care about people who got some ideas in their head that are really exciting. They found that they want a reason for getting up in the morning that excites the living daylights out of them. I, you know, I like people who are passionate about it and, you know, Lombardi would have called it, I like people who are everyday players who, you know, they're not just once in a while get interested in golf. I mean, it's like, they want to go see how good they can get. And again, it doesn't matter if it's golf or business or life, you know, it just, you know, I like people with ideas that are exciting um, because you kind of had to have some of that if you want to do some great stuff. So, I mean, a line I use all the time is good is the enemy of great. You know, the minute you decide that good is good enough for you, you're probably giving away the chance of ever being great at anything. And great, I don't care if you define great like the media does, probably like winning majors or winning tournaments on tour. uh, It might be you break, you shoot in the 70s and you've never broken 100. You know, it's like, so I mean, it can be a personal definition of greatness. um, But I think ultimately everybody knows because they've been there either in practice or in a round of golf or in a tournament for a week, they've been in this place where there was total peace of mind, their mind was clear and man, it was just happening. And it was so easy. And I think once you experience that, then the next quest is how can I learn to do that more of the time? How can I get closer to that place? Because now I know I have the ability to do it because I've been there. You can't deny it anymore. It's like, that's why we call it getting out of your own way. That's why we use terms like letting go. When we use the term letting go, some people think it means being floppy or sloppy or whatever, it, it means letting go of conscious control. And you have to get out of your own way by getting your mind to quiet down. I mean, that's a lot of it. And, and golf tends to be, a, you know, to some degree, a very overtaught game. It tends to get overly technical, at least for some people. And you have to be able to get past it all. I always use the example, when I was 10 playing basketball, my dad bought me Bill Sharman on shooting, who at the time was the best shooter in the NBA. You could not find a basketball book today that didn't agree with everything in Bill Sharman's book, other than now they jump, you know? But in terms of the technique, everyone agrees on how to shoot a basketball. You'd go to any coach in any country in the world, and they'd all use the same terminology and everyone agrees on how to shoot a basketball. There's no contest on who's got the right information. Um, We're just trying to get people to do it really well. And in golf, there's kind of a war on who's got the best information on the golf swing and who knows the correct information and what's the right way to do it. And you have to be able to get past that and you have to find a way that works for you. And it's really easy to get lost in it. And if you get lost in the technique, you're probably never going to get to the point where you just let it go because you're not thinking. You don't think you got it yet. You know, I, when I get my technique really good, then I'm going to start letting myself play golf versus going on the golf course and working on my swing all the time. And there's a big difference.
1: Man, you are speaking directly, directly to me at this current moment. So. Is there is there a checklist for this kind of thing? how do you how do you go about developing you know maybe a mental process that somebody can go through either prior to a shot or prior to a round or just in, in general, is there kind of a go-to thing that uh, that you fall back on?
0: well let, let's let's say this. yeah, I mean I, certainly I want your mind to be quiet and I want it to be into where you want the ball to go. But I would say you know you ought to be able to write down on a piece of paper, What am I doing behind the ball? Like, let's say you're picking a club and picking a shot. And then you're seeing it. And you're either seeing it and feeling it or just seeing it back there. But, I mean, at some point, you have to, before you get up to the golf ball, you have to have totally committed to that picture and what you're seeing. And as you're walking up to the golf ball, you have to, right now, I am going to totally commit and I'm not changing my mind as I'm walking up to the golf ball. So that preparation would be the first step. The second step would be maintaining your commitment as you're walking up to the golf ball. Once you're over it, you ought to be able to write down. I mean, here's, I'm just seeing it and doing it. And it'd be a routine. Some people, you could put it on a stop launch. You know, it could be like that predictable. And then after you hit the shot, people got to accept it wherever it goes and go get ready to do it again in the next shot. Um, so, I mean, it ought to be predictable. If you think about what people are trying to do with their technique, they're trying to make it more predictable, you know? So we're doing the same thing with the mind. We want it to be consistent and then it's like, okay, can you do it on one shot? Like some amateurs have probably done it on three shots a day in 18 holes. We're trying to do it on every shot for 18 holes over four days, over a year, over a career and. You know, it makes the game a lot easier. But but you got to get a way of doing it that's predictable that you can say before the round, this is my goal, this is my objective, is to do this on every shot. After the round, it's like, well, did I do that? If you did it, pat yourself on the back and say, good, let's do it again tomorrow. If you didn't do it, like what became more important than doing that? Was it someone driving a cart? Was it someone talking while you were getting ready to swing? Uh, Was it thinking about the ball going out of bounds? Was it worrying about your swing? Um, Was it worrying about winning or not winning? Or shooting a low score? I mean, it doesn't matter where it is. They're all just distractions, potentially. And you have to get really good that if any of those thoughts cross your mind, when they're not supposed to, that you got to get away and start over. If you get really good at it, you'll hardly ever have to walk away from a shot. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, th- that's what we're ultimately after. But it's, when it's time to swing is when you have to be really quiet. That's when I want people to be athletic. And, you know, most people have experienced it. And a lot of players experience it a lot with some part of their game, but don't experience with some other part of their game. And you have to get to the point where you can do it with everything particularly with your short game. People wonder why it's talked so much about short game. Well, you know, with a driver, I mean, look at it like this. Probably Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson, you know, they definitely weren't the best drivers of a golf ball with a driver that we've ever seen. And they were the two best players for 20 years. So it must not be absolutely crucial to be a great driver, particularly if you're long. It might be a lot more important if you're a shorter hitter. But with short game, you have to have a clear mind because if you have to pitch it over a bunker, you can't go, oh, i got to putt it through the bunker. Now, you know, when Martin Keimer won at Pinehurst and won by, I think, seven shots and didn't hit any pitch shots, he putted it around bunkers. That was one of the most unbelievable things I've ever seen. But it's the only time I've ever seen it. But in general, you have to be able to play short game. There's not a strategic option. Like Tiger... I mean, it was always interesting how people wanted to copy Tiger's swing. And I tell a lot of players, I said, have you ever noticed, like, in his prime, he hit two to four drivers a day with that swing? Most of the time, he used a different swing on the tee box and hit a stinger. Why are you trying to learn a swing that Tiger doesn't dare hit with a driver, yet you think he's unbelievably confident and good? It doesn't doesn't make any sense. You know, it's like... You better go get your mind. You have to be clear with your short game because like, every tournament's going to probably end with a pitch or a putt, or at least a putt. You get to the Masters in the last hole, you get a one-shot lead, you get a four-and-a-half-footer for par. You're going to find out if you trust your routine and if you believe you know how to putt. And if you don't, it'll show up. And that's that's why the game's marvelous. I
1: find myself and I know a lot of golfers w- w- would say the same thing here in terms of that. I find myself in feedback loops a lot, right? When it's, it's pretty easy for me to channel a lot of the confidence stuff. A lot of the visualization stuff we've talked about to this point when things are going good yet. I, I do find myself overcome with fear standing over shots. Uh, and as, as I say that, of course that sounds like a hor- horrific way to play the game, but it is, I, I struggle to fake confidence, right? It, it, it It seems like something that you can't, you know, good play breeds confidence, breeds good play, breeds confidence, blah, blah, blah. And it can go the opposite way. So is there a I I think we may have touched on it some there with just kind of channeling the checklist of things that you got you go into a round with and and a swing with. But how do you manage, you know, hitting golf shots or preventing hitting golf shots with fear and what kind of an impact fear can have uh, into the way a shot plays out?
0: Okay. Well, that's a whole bunch of stuff. So the, first thing, the first thing you said is you know, something about faking confidence. Well, see, I think a lot of people fake fear. In other words, you were just over in the practice range and I watched you and you hit that shot 15 times. And now you get on the golf course and you pretend you don't know how to hit it. But you don't ever hear anybody talk about faking fear or faking doubt. But man, people love to talk about faking confidence. I'm saying, no, I'm just trying to get you to be honest. Now, if you can't hit that shot in practice, then be like Tiger and hit a knock, find some club you can hit that you can put in play. Sometimes amateurs say, well, I feel like I'd have to go back to like a five iron in order to have a club I could stand up here and trust. I said, good, well, then hit a five iron. If the goal is to score the lowest you can score. If the goal is to find out if I can trust my driver on this hole and... I don't care about the consequence. If I don't, well then go ahead and try and hit your driver. But if you really care about scoring, you say, what club can I step up here and have nothing in the world exist but where I want the ball to go? Um, You have to get good at doing that. I mean, Nicholas was great at it. Nicholas and Tiger were probably the two best course managers of the last 60 years. I mean, they were very conservative strategists. They had tons of patience. If they weren't hitting their driver good, they just hit some other club and put it in play. And it's not a coincidence. They're like two of the greatest ever. Um, But we don't tend to want to learn from that because we don't want to be patient. We want to try stuff, you know? And, you know, it's, I mean, in terms of fear, it's like, so the first thing you have to address is, well, do I have the skill from practice experience to hit this shot? If you do, then you have to train your mind. It's not a skill problem. It's getting past fear and fear is a mirage. You know, uh, it's just something you made up in your mind that doesn't actually exist anywhere but in your mind. If you don't have the skill, well then admit it and say, what can I do? Just like Keimer did. And he found a way to win, which I thought was miraculous. Um, but it's probably not gonna work on a week to week basis. Um, So, I mean, some of it is like when people change their technique and get better skill, I'm always telling people you have to at least bring your mind up to the level of your skill level. But I would rather have people have their mind ahead of their skill because a lot of people improve their skill and they keep thinking the way they used to think when they didn't have the skill. So, I mean, you know, it doesn't do any good to change your skill if you don't bring your mind up to it. But I'd love to have your mind ahead of your skill level.
1: What about even going even further down the ring to things like the yips? I'm wondering if you've worked with with people specifically on yip-like things. What what is actually happening happening when it comes to somebody having the yips on chipping, putting, anything like that? Uh, even even other sports, I think you've worked with people on this. Uh, what what's the coaching like there? Is it any different than any of the concepts we've talked about to this point?
0: Well people make up all kinds of stuff about the yips they love to make it sound scientific and complicated and they love to use big words the bottom line is when you have the yips your head's in a bad place i mean you're thinking about missing or you're thinking about your hands or you're thinking about having the yips i mean you're kind of predicting it to your brain that means come on make my shake because i want them to the brain just takes what you get if all you're doing is thinking about where you want it to go you're not going to have the yips but some people don't want to acknowledge that their brain is caving in to those kinds of thoughts. And it usually, you know, maybe you had a bad experience. I'm not denying that at some point, you have to get past it. And, you know, with putting, I would say today we've come up with so many different grips. And then I would say probably the arm lock, you know, um, and people can argue over it being legal or whatever, but I mean, it's probably solved a lot of putting problems and a whole lot of different grips have. Um, I don't see as many people yipping with their putters today as I did 20 years ago. I see a lot more people yipping with pitching as they've cut the turf tighter and tighter. You still see some people with it, with the driver, but I mean, it's basically, if you got to get your mind empty and quiet, and it's when you're yipping, you're it's very busy and it's filled with really bad thoughts, either about the outcome or about your body not functioning. Now, are there people like certainly with people after fifty? I mean, there's a lot of people on various medications that might be adding to it. There might be people drinking way too much coffee. Or Mountain Dew, or whatever. Um, but by and large, um, it's you've got to get people to be honest, and you got to get a really good mental routine. So a lot of people have a physical routine, hoping it will get your mind in the right place, and it doesn't. So you you have to get a really good mental process that that you pre, that's predictable before the round starts. Um, but I mean, I I can't say as I spend the majority of my time, I I just as soon never even talk about the yips. I think there's way too much conversation about it. It ought to be like they'd like to present the yips like it's something that owns me instead of I'm thinking poorly right now about my putting or my pitching right now. I, you know, whether it's because you made it too complicated technically or because you're worried about the turf or the lie. And, you know, I call it a lot of golf junk that you hear And you have to get rid of all that golf junk and just see the shot Um, because little kids can do it. I mean, you think about it, putting and pitching and chipping, eight and 10-year-old kids can do. I mean, it's a pretty simple task. I can find some skills that are more complicated, but those are pretty simple. But if you get scared of it, which is basically admitting, God, when I'm scared, I can look pretty bad. You know, when my head's in a bad place, I can look like I don't have any skill. And you know, so you got to get people to be really honest about it. But the tendency for educated people is to start thinking more rather than thinking less. And it doesn't matter if it's a catcher in baseball who can throw it to second base on a dime if someone's stealing because they don't have time to think. But throwing it back to the pitcher, they think and they start worrying about throwing it into the outfield. Or the second baseman who can't throw it to first, but you put him at third base and he can throw to first base because it's not so bad if I make a bad throw from third but if I make a bad throw from second, this is going to look ridiculous or in basketball, it's at the free throw line, you know, because this would really be bad if I can't, if I shoot an air ball from the free throw line, I've worked with bowlers, with bowling, it's like in order to throw strikes, you have to roll the ball over the edge of the gutter. And if I get on national TV and throw gutter balls, man, it's going to be really embarrassing. So every sport has something that's really simple that makes us feel uncomfortable. And sometimes when I do talks, uh, I tell you, I tell you, let me just talk to the men here for a moment. And everyone goes, what do you mean? I go, well, I just want to explain to the men, when you miss an easy chip shot or an easy putt, you don't get neutered. In other words, you don't lose your male parts. I've never seen it happen. It's just something you made up in your head. And I said, you don't usually see women who think they're going to lose their femininity with their short game. But you see a lot of men who think they're going to be less of a man. And I go, you know, it doesn't happen.
1: What's it like teaching like the best players in the world for something like the books you write? How similar and how different are, are the concepts? And I don't know if you want to if that relates at all to you know your most recent book. Make make your uh, make your next shot your your best shot. But I, I'm just curious as to as to you know uh, how you would compare the similarities and the differences.
0: Well, the main difference is tour players have been doing it for a long time every day, almost for their whole life. Their skill level is higher. Their consistency is better. But I see amateurs that have the same passion, uh, but they've had a career, they've had a job, they had other things in their life that were important. Um, In terms of what I teach, it's the same. Now, they're after winning on tour and winning majors, and amateurs maybe after winning different things than that. but, I mean, every the whole reason for my books is that don't use a lack of skill as a reason to think poorly. Everybody can think as good as a tour pro. It's just that the ball isn't gonna go there as frequently or as consistently as a tour player, and you're not playing the same opponents, you know? Um, you know, you're you're playing a different field. So, I mean, that's the good news. But I mean, I, I think a lot of people, want to use that they don't have a certain level of skill to justify thinking poorly. And I'm always saying, well, so you don't have really good technical swing. Why would you think thinking poorly would help that? In other words, even with tour players, it's like, well, we change our strategy, but we always make sure we think really good every time it's we're ready to swing. And so everybody can do that. And I just keep updating my books with new and simpler ways of getting there. Um, you know, some of it, like in this next book, I, you know, we interviewed Tom kite because he's one of the most dedicated hardworking players probably ever play the game of golf and a guy that I admire a great deal. And, you know, Tom talked about being a kid and he said, you know, I, I got dropped off at of the course sometime around 715, 730 on my dad's day to work. Uh, I'd get two hours of practice in before the other kids got to the course. Um, they get to the course, hit a few balls, and say, "Let's go play." We'd go play, eighteen holes or twenty-seven holes, and then we'd go have lunch. We'd ha- I'd have lunch, and I'd go back to the practice area. They'd have lunch, and they'd go to the swimming pool for a few hours. My dad would come home from work, and we'd go play another nine or eighteen. Then we'd go have dinner. After dinner, everyone else in the family would go watch TV. My dad and I had built a green in the backyard and a bunker, and. We had a nightlight on it. I'd go out there for several hours and practice, pitching and bunker play and putting until it was time to go to bed. And I couldn't wait to get up the next morning and do it again the next day. I, I, I have a junior academy at my club and I was reading the kids an interview with the head of the Korean Junior National Program. And someone asked him, you know, why are they so good? And he said, well, Korean juniors are more disciplined and more dedicated and single-minded they spend all of their time practicing golf and doing schoolwork and they do it every day. And then he stopped and said, and they start being dedicated and disciplined at an earlier age than most people from other cultures. And I I read it to our kids and I said, I know the people at our club are gonna tell you how dedicated and hardworking you are, but relative to whom? And I told them there's a lot of research in psychology and called perceived exertion. And what it tells us is that people aren't very accurate in their perception of how hard they're practicing or working at something. And some lazy people think they're not working hard enough. And so they're always pushing themselves for more. And some really lazy people think they're the hardest workers in the world. And I said to these kids, I said, if you want to see how far you can go, you just got to understand at some age, by the time you get to 16, 17, 18, and beyond, you're going to be competing against everybody else in the world. Now you can either complain that these kids from other countries are too single-minded and want it too much and care too much, or you can decide, that's my competition. And let's face it, competition is what made America great. It's what makes athletes great. You know, Tom Kite would probably say, I don't know where I would have been as a golfer if I didn't have a kid two years younger than me, Ben Crenshaw at my club, beating me all the time as a kid. He said, it really helped me. And so I think great competitors understand the better you get, it's going to force me to get better. The better I get, it's going to force you to get better. And it's really what a healthy competitor is all about. And I think we have to be honest. I mean, some of the difference at the top level is how much time and energy they put into it. And some of it is because... They have all day to do it, and most people don't. So you know, it's like everything is relative. Uh, you know, so I mean, let's go out and trust whatever you have to the best of your ability.
1: Hmm. We and we've covered off on almost all of the uh, the concepts that I, that I, I think we wanted to I wanted to cover today. But one thing I wanted to, to touch on as well is I've heard you emphasize the importance of not being too tuned in with either your score during the middle of a round, your standing in the middle of a tournament. Uh, I I have personally fallen victim to a lot of these things at at many times in both tournaments and just rounds that I have going. I'm always very aware of what I am in relation to par and all that. Why why would that be a a potential hindrance to somebody on the golf
0: course? Well, because golf is about living in the present moment and playing one shot at a time. People say it's a cliche. Yeah, it's a cliche because it works. It's worked forever. It's, it's been an essential skill if you want to get great at golf. Well, I, you know, I mentioned earlier about getting a routine process that you do on every shot and do it shot after shot until you run out of holes. And, you know, it's not a crazy idea. Lombardi had a great line. He said, every football game comes down to one or two plays that happen somewhere during the game. And he told his team, the darn problem is you don't know when those two plays are going to happen. So you better make sure you're totally and completely focused on every down in case the next one is one of the two that's going to determine the outcome. Now, there's one of the greatest football coaches of all time. John Wood won 10 national championships at UCLA. He never talked about winning or losing. He talked about when the game is over, if we were behind, all it means is we simply ran out of time. If the game had lasted long enough, we would eventually come out on top. But someone decided it last 40 minutes, and who was ahead at 40 is the winner. I tell golfers sometimes you run out of holes, but well, let's play. Your... So we put a game plan together. We go out and execute it to run out of holes. Sometimes people in TV, when they ask me about it, they can't stand it when I talk about. I just want you to play your own game. And they're on TV talking about everybody's paying attention to every leaderboard. And I go, well, first of all, no one talks about how many people have lost tournaments because they got too distracted by what was going on in the leaderboard. Second of all, leaderboards aren't necessarily official. So they could be wrong. But more importantly, it just makes it harder to stay in the present moment. And I want everyone to give every shot the same equal low level of importance and starting to get concerned about leaderboards. So people say, so what are they afraid to look at? No, they're not afraid to look at leaderboards. They assume before the round started that they were gonna win if they went out and executed their game plan. So they, the other players are irrelevant, they're immaterial to us. It's like, I wanna win the battle with myself and if I win the battle with myself, I'll win the tournament and everyone will kiss my butt. That's the game we're into. and could you look at leaderboards my experience even with tour players is if you've won a lot recently you could look at leaderboards and still have peace of mind and stay in the present because it wouldn't mean anything to you other than yep i knew i was going to win before it started and it wouldn't have any emotional or psychological effect on you but even players that have won several times if they haven't won in a couple years or maybe a year it starts becoming too meaningful For a lot of players. Now, if you happen to have the lowest metabolism in the world and you're unbelievably comfortable with winning and you can convince yourself and me that you can look at leaderboards and it helps you. Well, then I tell you to look at leaderboards. But all I can tell you is most people would be a lot better off in every sport if they just played their game and lived in the moment and trusted the outcome would take care of itself.
1: On the non-golf side, you've helped people with, with stage fright, rider's block, you've helped people at, at Fortune 500 companies. What makes like what you do in the golf space transferable to, to other areas of business or other sports or
0: things like that? Well, I think it's pretty simple. Do, do you want to be great or do you want to be average? Are you trying to separate yourself from everybody else who does what you do or do you want to just be like everybody else? And then you, you ask them, where do you think you belong? What's good enough for you? And why did you choose that? If you had a high school coach in whatever sport you played, who told you on day one, well, you know, you don't have much talent. You could only be pretty good. You're never going to be really good. Uh, How many of you would love that coach? If you live in a city and you support an NFL team and they hire a new coach and the coach goes on TV and goes, well, you know, if we could be 500, I think that'd be unbelievable for us. How many of you would have said, well, I love that coach. Man, he's awesome. He's lighting my fire. You know, nobody would. And then a lot of people with their own lives go to school. And when they go to college, they think, wow, I can do anything I put my mind to. I'm really smart. Man, I'm unbelievable. And by the time they graduate, hanging around other smart kids who are dedicated, they've they've figured out I'm not as good as I used to think I was. I can't do all the things I used to think I could do, and I say, if that's what you're learning from your college education, you're spending a lot of money to to really ruin your life and your career. And you know, you want to, as you grow up, you want to get more confident, you want to have bigger ideas for your life or your company, you want to enlarge your dreams, and if everyone's telling you how much they love, how realistic you are. You better stop and take a look at yourself and say, wow, what am I doing? Because it's really about looking for ways to separate yourself from everybody else who does what you do. And you know, I don't tell people what their dreams ought to be. I just want to make sure people don't lower their dreams or give up on their dreams as they grow up because they convince themselves they couldn't do it. Um, and that's where you know, having big ideas, having patience, persistence, the ability to delay gratification, because let's face it, for some people, it might take quite a while to get there. And I'm always telling people, well, what if you give up on your dream like a day or a week before it was all going to fall into place? Maybe the door of opportunity was going to fall in your lap. So like in sales or in business, it's like, you got to treat every client, The way I treat every client, every client that comes to my house, no matter what they've done in their past, my attitude is to get jacked because this might be my next major champion. This might be the next great player I get to spend time with. Um, That's my kick in life. I don't know why I get a bigger kick out of helping people with their dreams um, and that that's what fulfills my dreams. Like the tour players will say, you know, you'd fly around the world to help me win a golf tournament. Um, but you wouldn't fly around the world to play in a golf tournament. And they look at me and say, I'd fly around the world, doc, to win a tournament, but I wouldn't go next door to help someone else win a tournament. And I go, well, we're different and that's okay. But I mean, it's, uh, but I mean, I think you got to get ideas in your head and not let people take them away from you. And if you had a coach or a teacher who didn't believe, well, then you got to believe And you got to focus on all the reasons why it could happen to you. And that's why I talk a lot about you have to feel like you're destined to do something unbelievable with your career. Um, And that's definitely something you create in your mind. It's something you make up. It's like your ideas for your life. And that's what gives you passion. That's what gets you up in the morning. And, you know, for some people who retire, golf is the reason for getting up in the morning. It's like they got a new goal. I tell a story about a client of mine named Gary Burkett, I mean, who had 60 retired. And that was his whole thing. He said, I watch a lot of people when they retire, if they didn't have a new goal or a new dream, they kind of vegetated and didn't last long. And he said, I got to have a new goal. And for him, golf was a new goal. And it's like, so, I mean, you got to have something that excites you.
1: Well, I, for one, am very excited to play golf today after all of this. I, 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 we'll I'm, ready to, I'm ready to channel all this. I, I'm ready to turn the corner on this. But
0: We'll uh, go light it up.
1: Let's uh, let's get you out of here on this. Tell us, tell us. Uh, I know we've talked some about it, but tell us about uh, make your next, next shot your best shot and uh, where people can find that and, and what they'll find within that.
0: Well, I mean, you can find it in Barnes & Noble, bookstores all over the place. You can get it on Amazon. Uh, Simon & Schutzer produced it. Um, I I wrote it with Roger Schiffman, who worked for Golf Digest for years. Um, It was great to work with. Um, Basically, it's like some new ideas about attitude, about thinking. We did a whole chapter on, you know, I was the first person with a gentleman from the University of Virginia Research Bureau named Bruce Ganziner. We were the first people to do a statistical analysis of the tour stats. And I, I like our stats a lot better than some of the modern stats. Um, because I think they only apply to tour players. And I try to show statistics, uh, you know, how basically for course management and for what you ought to spend your time practicing. Um, But I mean, a lot of it is talking about the difference between, you know, precocious kids and late bloomers. A lot of it is about being able to delay gratification and really having persistence. A lot of it is about getting through times when you're working your tail off and not getting any better. And you got to keep believing Um, so, I mean, it's, it's just, it's new ideas that are slightly different. It's sharing with the world of amateur and pro golfers, what we're learning from the best golfers in the world is the simplest way I can put it. And I've put it, I've put it in a language that anybody can understand and apply. Basically, we're trying to take away all the excuses for not doing it. Like no one can say, I can't make sense out of that, or that doesn't sound right, or that's too complicated or I don't know what you're talking about. It's really very understandable.
1: Yeah, it that's what I've I've noticed from your books over the years. Is none of it's overly scientific. It is. It's very much just designed to be put into into practice pretty pretty easily. So I think same goes for for, for this episode. No, this is I think digestible and manageable, and it uh, it's not intimidating. If anything, it's kind of freeing. I think so. Just wanted to thank you, Doctor Rotella, for coming on sharing sharing a lot of this, and uh, and we uh, look forward to uh, to doing this sometime again in the future. Appreciate your time.
0: Great being with you. Thanks